Let's pray that the Lord would bless our reading and preaching of the word. Father, we come to the time now when we open your word, we read, we proclaim what the word says, we encourage, instruct, and exalt your name, and turn our eyes to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts so that we might read, that we might hear, and that we might believe all that you teach us in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many of you are totally confused by the book of Revelation? Just, I read this and it's full of all these weird scenes and images and I have no clue what it's talking about. Oh, you all, no, I see no hands. That means you all understand it perfectly, right? <sighs> Boy, they don't call you the frozen chosen for nothing, do they? I, I actually believe that Revelation is one of the clearest books in the Bible that teaches about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The events leading up to, including, and flowing from, the second coming. And yes, there are images that do not immediately lend themselves to uh, our understanding. And yes, there are strange ideas, perhaps, even in the, in the book of Revelation. But let me, let me challenge you to do something. Many years ago, I, I was reading, uh, and, I, and I, I read the first chapter. And in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, there is a promise of blessing to those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and keep the words of this prophecy. And I thought to myself, well, for a book that's so confusing to people, how come we're told that there's a blessing to those who read and keep this prophecy? And by the way, it is a prophecy. It is what we sometimes call apocalyptic from the word, which is the Greek word, which is the title of the book, meaning revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. So I, I set a, a goal for myself, which I, I often do not keep the goals that I set. I was, I was going to lose 25 pounds this year. <laughs> we all can tell how that's working out. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I, I, I set a goal and I said, I'm going to read the whole book through once a day for a month and see what happens. And I was amazed. Because as you read, day after day, the passages become familiar, but you also start making connections to other parts of the Bible. And one passage will make you think of a passage in the Old Testament or another passage in the New Testament, and you'll, you'll go scurrying off to read that passage. And first thing you know, you're building up a whole library of knowledge based on Scripture from reading this and following through on the statements in the book of Revelation. And as you read, it does become clearer. It does become clearer. Take my word, well, don't take my word for it. Try it yourself, try it yourself. Try to read it several times in a row, maybe not for a whole month, but for a couple weeks at least. It's 22 chapters and they're not all that long and you can probably do it in about an hour and a half to, or so. I realize not everybody has that much time that they can devote to this, but I do challenge you to do that. 
we are going to read tonight from a passage that comes right in the, the beginning of the second half of the book. And it does seem as if there is a new vision that John sees here. The, the book is a, a, a record of visions that John is allowed to see, and he records those visions. He sometimes has conversations with an angel, uh, and he records that too. And he, he envisions things on earth and things in heaven. And as you read, you will see that there's an interplay between things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, it really is an illustration of the psalm uh, verse that says, Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He reigns from heaven over the earth. And when he decrees something in heaven, it happens on earth. Just like creation. And God said, and it happened, and it was good. I don't know why we have to make that more complicated than it is, but a lot of people do. So beginning at verse 1 in chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in whom she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death." Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Here we end this reading of God's word. What's well, a rather dramatic scene, isn't it? A woman about to give birth, described as being clothed with the sun. Startling. And right in front of the woman appears a second great image, the image of a great dragon. And as the woman cries out in the pains of childbirth, the dragon is ready to seize the child and destroy it. And yet, this child is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Does that sound familiar? If you were here this morning, that's taken right out of Psalm 2. And this is another instance where, as you read, you start making connections with other parts of the Bible. So really, what we're looking at is is really an unfolding of something that is in Psalm 2. This child that is born and then caught up to heaven, this child is the one who is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the Son of God. This is the Christ. But it's interesting to think, who is the woman? Who is the woman? Well, some people, I, I've, I've seen many times ministers preach this passage at Christmas time because it talks about the birth of this boy child, this man child who is destined to rule the nations. And so they link this image of the woman to to Mary. I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think it's the whole story either. I think the beginning of this story and another connection being made goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God speaks to the serpent, Satan, and he says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. He will bruise, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the child that comes from the woman, but the seed of the woman, the child of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. The woman, in that case, is Eve, but she stands really, in in some way, I'm not going to be precise in this, say there's an exact uh, parallel here, but in a way that is somewhat similar to the fact that Adam stands as our covenant head, and we are all represented in the covenant of works in Adam, there's something about Eve that she stands in a way as a symbol of woman, of the woman. She stands as a symbol of God's promise that though there will be pain in childbearing, yet the woman will be saved through childbearing. There's, a, there's in, a, in a sense, a cosmic significance to a woman's childbearing function. It's something that God planned. It's something that God made. It's something that, even on just a plain human level, is marvelous, almost miraculous. But it also, in the Bible, is presented to us as having cosmic 
significance. Which is perhaps why the wicked still rage and still seek to kill the child. As we read through this passage in Revelation, and we're really going to focus on this, this statement here. There's war in heaven. Michael and those who follow Michael, his angels do battle with Satan and his angels, and Satan is defeated and cast out of heaven. How many of you have ever thought that Satan actually can be up in heaven in the presence of God? That seems to be the implication of this passage, though that uh, is limited, though that is uh, coming, uh, that comes to an end in this passage. Yet, it, it does seem that Satan had access to God's, for lack of a better term, throne room. We also know this from another book in the Bible. Ever read the book of Job? How does Job start out? One day, the sons of God, including Satan, came before God, and God said to Satan, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And what does Satan do? Well, God says there is, there is no one like Job in all the earth. He is upright. He, is, he worships me. He loves me. He, he, uh, he is full of, of goodness. And Satan says, well, the only reason he worships you is because you have blessed him with so much. What is Satan doing with Job? He's accusing him. Remember in Revelation. See, I'm making all these connections for you. In Revelation, what is he called here in this passage? The accuser of our brothers. The accuser of our brothers. He is a, both a deceiver and an accuser. And in the book of Job, he's presented in that role of the accuser. He accuses Job of really not having uh, honest motives in worshiping God. He only worships you because you've given him so much. You've blessed him with so much. If you take all his possessions away, if you take everything away from him, what does Satan say? He will curse you to, his, to your face. Now, it's interesting because Satan's accusation against Job also has a second barb in it, and that barb is against God himself. Because Satan is accusing God basically of being snookered by Job. <laughs> He's, Job, Job God, Job has deceived you. Job's worship of you is not real. You may think it's real, but it's not real. It's not sincere. It's all based on his material possessions. So, story goes on. Satan is given permission. Remember this, Satan is not sovereign. He is not equal to, to God. He only is allowed to touch Job with God's permission. He is a dog on a chain who howls and barks and snaps and can do some damage. But he still is on that chain, and on the other end of that chain is the firm hand of the sovereign God Almighty, who only allows him to do what he is allowed to do, and keeps that rein or that chain tight at times. 
So then Satan comes back. On another day, the sons of God come. And, and, and Job has been taken, has, has lost everything. He's lost all his possessions. He's lost his family. And Satan says, skin for skin. What will a man give for his skin? If you touch his body, he will curse you to his face. You see, Satan is actually acknowledging that he lost round one. He lost the first round. So God gives him permission to afflict Job with afflict Job's body, but you need to spare his life. And Satan does that. And still, Job does not curse God. But Satan is the accuser. And I'm looking, I'm referring back to those opening scenes of the book of Job because it really does illustrate that Satan is the accuser of our brothers, the accuser of God's people. Nevertheless, he is the accuser, and he accuses, this passage says, he accuses them before God day and night. His accusations are constant. His accusations are persistent. And yet a time comes when he is cast out from the presence of God. It also says this. It says this. In verse 11, And they have conquered him. That is, those who are accused by Satan. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Two things. Two things by which the saints conquer Satan. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Satan's accusations are against us. I, and sometimes people feel this very much. I don't know if any of you remember an older minister in this. Well, he was in our presbytery, and he had been a missionary for quite a while. He uh, pastored a church in Long Beach. His name was Henry Corey. Uh, Henry Corey retired and went to live up in, uh, near Santa Barbara. Uh, went to a church in Goleta, uh, one of our churches, which is in Goleta. When Henry Corey was reaching the end of his life, he was in a, uh, a facility, and uh, we knew he was, he was going to pass away pretty soon. He was deteriorating, declining in health quite rapidly. And a friend of mine went up to visit him. And in their conversation, Henry Corey said this, and this is a man who had served Christ his entire life, served him on the mission field, served him in churches, was well-respected in the church. And Henry Corey said this, Satan is attacking me and reminding me of all my sins. Pray for me. Pray for me. Satan is attacking me and reminding me of all my sins. When my own father was passing away, he had just a few more weeks to live. 
And I asked him, Dad, what is your only hope in faith or in, in life? What is your only comfort in life? And he was on morphine because he was in quite a bit of pain. He was on morphine and he was very drowsy. But he heard my question to him and I could literally, and I remember it to this day, he pulled himself up in his bed and he shook his head to clear his thoughts and he recited Heidelberg one from memory perfectly. And you have those two elderly men at the, at the doorway of eternity. And one says, Satan is attacking me and reminding me of my sins. But the other elderly man has the answer for that. My only comfort in life and in death is this. I wish we could have put the two together. Now, indeed, my friend prayed with him and with Henry Corey, and, uh, and Henry understood what was going on. And he said, it makes me come uh, to the cross even more. It makes me trust Christ even more. And that is because the saints overcome the accusations of Satan, first of all, by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. In Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian has been, uh, been outfitted with the, uh, the, the armor of God. And he meets this fiendish character called Apollyon. And Apollyon throws fiery darts at him. Of course, the imagery is taken right out of Ephesians chapter 6. But Apollyon throws these fiery darts. Well, what these darts are are accusations. Accusations of sin. And Apollyon tells, tells Christian, you've been unfaithful. You've stumbled. You've turned your back. You wandered off the way. You betrayed your prince. And it's interesting that as John Bunyan writes this scene, Christian answers this way. Yes, everything you say is true, and more. And more. You could have gone on with all my failures and all my sins. But Jesus, my Savior, is merciful. And Jesus has given me pardon for my sins. You see, that sense of guilt that arises when we hear in our own conscience the accusations of Satan. And we have to acknowledge, even as Henry Corey acknowledged, as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress acknowledges, all of this is true. All of this is true. And yet, the Lamb has died for me. And I conquer in the blood of the Lamb, because my sins have been paid for. My guilt is washed away. We don't sing the hymn too much anymore. Perhaps it's a little too colorful uh, for modern taste, but you remember the old song, the old hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins.
and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And where the guilt has been washed away, and where the sin has been atoned for, and where the debt has been paid, Satan, shush your mouth! What you say may be true, but it counts for nothing because Christ has died and I have trusted in him. Can you all say that tonight? Can you all say that tonight? Oh, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Well, I'm preaching to you, but, you know, the old saying, preaching to the choir. I know, but perhaps you're wrestling with guilt. Perhaps you're, you're sensing those accusations, and perhaps Satan is raising up in your conscience your failures and your sins, but you believe in Christ. You conquer first by the blood of the Lamb, and Satan is silenced, and his accusations fall to nothing. People like to portray Satan and God as the two opposites, one representing good, one representing evil, but they're opposite, they're kind of equal, they go back and forth, or, you know, the yin and the yang, whatever, whatever way of thinking about it people have developed, but they're not equal. Well, they are opposites, but they are not equal by any means. The blood of the Lamb. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it's related to the word atonement. It has the idea, though, of satisfying the demands of justice. Satan, uh, uh, Jesus dying on the cross was not paying Satan off. He was not atoning for our sins by somehow bribing Satan. No, he was satisfying the righteous judgment of God. The atonement's direction was Godward, not Satanward, not to us, not to be a moral influence, not to be an example of self-sacrifice. He was atoning for our sins, and that's what it means when it says he's a propitiation. God is satisfied. His justice has been satisfied, and that's the reason why Satan's accusations have no merit any longer. Christ is our advocate. He's our defender, our defense counsel. And his defense is that he is the propitiation for our sins. His blood is the atonement that satisfies the justice of God. It washes the way of stain of guilt. It reconciles us to God. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Isn't it wonderful how some of our best theology is captured in our songs? They also conquer in another way. The Bible says they conquer because of the word of their testimony. Several times in the book of Revelation, we find this, this terminology, the word of their testimony, or... Uh, actually, at the end of the chapter, where I, I read all the way to the end of chapter 12, 
It says in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's a, another reference there to, to the testimony of the believers. John opens up the book of Revelation by saying that he was on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ, for the testimony. And that is a way of understanding that is that his witness, his testimony, his, his preaching and teaching uh, about Jesus Christ had somehow caught the attention of the emperor and his government and they had exiled him to the island of Patmos. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. That's what John says. The reason why he was exiled on Patmos. Here we have the testimony of the saints as an element of their victory over Satan. I asked you a few minutes ago, do you wrestle with that guilt? Do you wrestle with guilt? Well, you can learn from this passage what to do about that guilt. But then I have to ask you, what is your testimony? What message do people get from you, both by words and by your actions, by the life you live and by the words that you speak? When I was much younger, a pastor in our, in our church, he was visiting actually said this, and this was a time, of course, when uh, we were in this great conflict with, uh, with communism. Uh, it's still around. It's in North Korea. It's in China. It's in American universities. It's, you know, it's still around. Uh, but he would try to get us thinking by saying this. If somehow the Soviet Union were to attack America and conquer it, and you, were, if you, and you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> Ooh. Well, that gets a little personal. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Could people tell by your testimony in both word and deed, that you were a believer in Jesus Christ, that you had trusted him and that you honor him as Lord and Savior. Would that be your testimony? Think of, think of what John wrote in the Gospel of John about Jesus Christ. And now everything in that, in that epistle or in that Gospel of John is, is pointing to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. Think of the letters that John wrote, how he defends the sonship of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. His testimony is in those words, but his testimony is also in his actions. We often think of Paul as the great theologian of the New Testament, but in the early church, actually the early church thought of John as the great theologian of the early church. Because John's focus was on Christ. John, well, so was Paul's. I'm not saying Paul was different. But they, when you put the two of them together, you realize you have one apostle who, whose main uh, testimony is in defense of the principle of justification by faith alone. And another apostle whose main testimony is his presentation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God incarnate. What is our testimony?
If your testimony is a testimony about Jesus Christ, it's not a testimony about your success in business. It's not a testimony about the wealth or the possessions you have. It's not a testimony about your wonderful family and how wonderful it is when your family gets together and, and they, tur- they, they all turned out so well, you know. Is that your testimony? Stock market's doing great. Well, it's not doing great, but it's, it is bouncing back a bit. Is that your testimony? Let our testimony be Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, as he was dealing with a church that was dividing itself with, in factions, dividing itself with strange ideas that were coming into the church, and it is precisely because of these strange ideas, Paul said, that when I came to you, I determined to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's what you needed to hear. Oh, yes, that's not the whole message of the Bible, but that's what those people needed to hear at that time, because they were being fractured and led astray by all kinds of strange ideas and corrupt practices and so forth. Get your focus back on Jesus Christ and let him be your testimony. In Revelation chapter 19, John records this, and this is he sees an angel. And he says this, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now think about that. That's really saying that the testimony about Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus, captures the heart of prophecy, which literally means speaking for God. You know, we think of prophecy always in the terms of saying something about the future, but Even beyond that, what it means is speaking for God. The prophets were his servants who spoke in his name to the people. When we speak, are we speaking the testimony of Jesus, which the angel says is the the spirit, the heart of prophecy. At the core of the message stands Jesus Christ. That testimony, again, just like the the story of the woman, the story of God's promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, goes beyond any one child and any one woman, but actually captures God's plan to defeat Satan through childbearing and eventually bringing into the world his own son incarnate, the one destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Just as that echoes in, in, throughout history, 
with cosmic significance, so does the testimony of the saints of God for Jesus Christ. It is through the foolishness of preaching, (laughs) the foolishness of preaching, that the gospel comes to so many people. It is the communication of words and deeds. It's It's the way of life that speaks even more eloquently sometimes than words. But it has to also include words because we need to know who Jesus is and we need to understand what he did. That testimony, that witness, defeats Satan. Truth overcomes deception. Truth about Jesus defeats Satan. The blood of the Lamb defeats Satan's accusations. And brothers and sisters, you and I are drenched in the blood of the Lamb. And you and I must speak the testimony of Jesus. And by this, we shall overcome. Martin Luther, different context, but same thought. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, knock him right down. Satan is terrible. He rages, he's furious, he deceives, he accuses. Everything about him is just a a cloud of destruction. And yet, God has given to us the means of conquering him. In the name of Jesus Christ, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by his testimony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray tonight that you would give us courage. We, we live in difficult times, even as we talked about this morning. We seem to be living in a, in a time where rapidly we are descending into evil. We are descending into malice. We are seeing the, the deeds of the sinful nature as described by the Apostle Paul in, in Galatians 5. We are seeing them spread across our attention day by day. And yet, Lord, we understand that Satan is behind this. It is part of his rebellion, yet he will not prevail. And though he accuses us, and though he attempts to deceive, he will not ultimately succeed. For the blood of the Lamb has provided our propitiation, and the word of our testimony lifts up Jesus Christ and advances the truth of Jesus Christ in the face of Satan's deception. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage and give us wisdom and give us faith so that we might lay hold of these powerful weapons of spiritual warfare and do battle and in the name of our Savior overcome, overcome Satan, overcome all the evil around us. 
As our hymn said, we do not pray to be to escape tribulation, but we pray that you would help us endure and overcome even in the midst of tribulation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.